0: Well, we're carrying on in our series in the names of Jesus, and uh, we've already looked at uh, the Son of Man, we've looked at the Son of David, and uh, this evening we're coming to the name Christ. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word Christ? Well, some people, when they hear it, they think that's a swear word. If you go out on the streets, that's sometimes how the name is used. Some people think of it just as another name for Jesus. So, you know, is it Chris or is it Christopher? Just take your pick, Jesus Christ Christ. Either or. People in France, though, uh, they thought that my name was Christ, uh, it turned out, because they don't have the name Chris. And uh, in French, the pronunciation of Chris and Christ uh, are very, very close. So uh, quite a few people thought that I was actually called Christ, but I am not, uh, just for the record. Um, but as we look at this name of Jesus, I want us to sort of defamiliarize ourselves with the words, because we hear it so often, don't we? And we do sort of think about it in those different ways. So as we seek to love him and to see him and to know him better, we need to sort of forget a little bit of what we just associate generally with with Christ, sort of thinking of it just as another name for Jesus. What we have in the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And both words mean one who is anointed. That's why we had that word anointed in, in Psalm 2. Um, And usually the implication is that's done with oil. So the Greek word Christ is related to the other Greek word chrism, which is passed into English, uh, a sort of oil. But even if you think about it, that doesn't help us so much, does it? Because we're not really familiar with that practice of putting oil on people. When we think of oil, we tend to think of cooking or cars. So what's the significance of having oil poured on you? That's even a little bit strange. So to help us, what, help us understand what's going on, we're t- going to take another fast-paced tour uh, through the Bible and see how this theme of anointing uh, grows and develops, because that's really the word behind the word uh, Christ. And as with the last few weeks, there's no need to turn to every passage, uh, but if you want me to ask for the references afterwards, I'll happily give you them again. Uh, in the meanwhile, forget anything you think you know, um, and let's see what the Bible says. So first of all, Christ in the Old Testament. Well, before we come to people being anointed in the Old Testament, it's worth pointing out that actually the first thing to be anointed in the Bible is an altar. So Genesis thirty-one thirteen, 13, uh, God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So actually the first thing to be anointed was, a, was an altar. Uh, it was done by uh, Jacob as he anointed the pillar. And um, that theme of anointing carries on uh, into Exodus. It starts in Genesis just with something really small, but it carries on in uh, the tabernacle and all the things within it that are anointed. So, Exodus 40, verse 9. Then you shall take anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture. So that it may become holy. Now, this starts to give us a picture now of why you'd anoint an altar, why you anoint the tabernacle and the things inside it. The idea is that so that it may become holy. So, the idea of anointing was there to set something apart, to consecrate it, to make it holy. So, it's no surprise then that actually the first people in the Bible to be anointed are the priests that God set aside uh, to look after the temple. So Exodus thirty thirty, 30. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Here you can see that same idea of setting apart these people, consecrating them, making them holy. They even had something written on the plate that they wear, wouldn't they, that said holy to the Lord. So anointing seems to set them apart as Holy. To be used for God's purposes. And the first anointed ones were priests. But as we move on through history, the practice moves on from just the priest to (coughs) other people as well. And it starts to include people like kings. So the idea is mentioned in Judges and Hannah's Prayer, before you get kings. But sort of looking forward to it in 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, In 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, Saul is the first one who's anointed by Samuel. So 1 Samuel 10 verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be a prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, and you will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. From that point on, Saul is actually referred to quite often as the Lord's anointed. So when David refuses to kill him, he says, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. So it's the same word, he's effectively referring to him as the Christ. So Saul, though, is a bad example of what it means to be the Christ, isn't he? A bad example of what it means to be the anointed one. He fails utterly, doesn't he, and is rejected by God. But David is also anointed as king. So 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here, David is anointed as king. There's this pouring on of the oil again. And do you see how it's linked with his receiving of the spirit? The spirit rushes upon him like he's rushed upon the judges in the book of Judges. But here it's linked with him being anointed as king. And this link between the anointing and the Holy Spirit will start to develop as we go on through the Bible. It will be repeated again and again. So kings start to be called anointed ones. Kings start to have this anointing with oil. The final group who are anointed in the Bible are prophets. You can see that in Elijah's appointment of Elisha. So 1 Kings 19, 15 to 16 and the Lord said to him, go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you shall uh, arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Melholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Do you see there that actually the prophet is anointing uh, people? Uh, kings and prophets there are to be anointed So what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen that there are three offices that are set apart by anointing. The office of prophet, priest and king. Basically, all those three can be referred to in the Old Testament as anointed ones. All three of them in some way are Christ's. So in the writings, um, this idea is picked up. But interestingly, in the writings, it tends to take on... Just one meaning, not priests, not prophets, but kings. Now, if you think about the writings, the Psalms, the, the Proverbs and, and those things, it sort of makes sense that it's linked with the kings, if you think about it, because those books were generally written in the era of the kings, weren't they? Uh, David wrote the Psalms often. Uh, Solomon wrote the, part of the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So it seems to be that those things are linked mainly with anointed ones as kings. Uh, The example that we got there in Psalm 2, which we read earlier, is stark, isn't it? God sets up his Christ, literally his anointed, uh, to rule in Zion. And later on in the passage, it goes on to refer to him as, I have set my king on Zion's holy hill. So it's almost being used as a synonymous term, it's almost being used together. And the way that term is used from this point on is generally going back to the idea in Psalm 2. So all the way through the Psalms and the writings, it's always sort of pointing you back to this anointed one uh, in Psalm 2, who will rule over the nations, who will be king uh, of all the world. So the writings tend to be, uh, use it as a king. In the prophets, though, we begin to look forward to not just the kings of the day, but to one anointed one who will come in the future. So Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3 says this, the spirit of the Lord is is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here in the prophets, it starts to look forward to this anointed one in the future. And here again, we have this link with the spirit. Did you see that back in, I'll read to you again, verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The implication seems to be that there's an anointing that's happening here with receiving the Holy Spirit. He is anointed by the Spirit, or at least the Spirit coming upon him was as he was anointed. The Spirit-filled one, the anointed one, will bring good news. He will free prisoners. He will heal broken hearts. He'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, jubilee. He'll bring vengeance on God's enemies. But he'll comfort those who mourn. He'll make his people oaks of righteousness. So the Christ here now in the prophet starts to take on this picture of a wonderful saviour, of a rescuer who will bring in a wonderful world. This is what the anointed one, the Christ, will do. When you come to Daniel, uh, Daniel 9 gives us this idea of an anointed one as well, as a sort of figure coming in the future. So Daniel nine twenty five to 26 We're not going to look at that passage uh, in any detail, but uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Like I said, we're not going to go into any detail in Daniel 9. Maybe we'll do that someday. Uh, I'll get Steve to preach it. Uh, (laughs) But um, we see here that there's anointed one who's coming. And there also appears to be this anointed one who is put off. Um, In Zechariah, there are two anointed ones. Though it's slightly different phrasing. So Zechariah 4.14 Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, from the context, it seems to be that these two anointed ones are the office of priest and the office of king. It doesn't actually use the phrase anointed one Christ. It calls them sons of oil. But you've got the same idea there. So this would be Joshua and Zerubbabel in Zachariah's context. But the office of more generally of priest and king are sort of in mind here that they're always before God both the priest and the king. The other time that Christ is mentioned, Christ the term, is mentioned in the prophets uh, is Cyrus. Cyrus is worth a note. He was a pagan king, but he's also called a Christ as well. So Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. And to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now at first, when you think of this idea that we've been looking at, this Christ idea that's been developing, it sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it, to suddenly have a pagan king. There's no obvious faith there from Cyrus in God. And yet, Cyrus is God's chosen instrument, isn't he? He's the the king that God set apart for his purposes, to rescue his people and to bring them home. It no more means that he's regenerate than King Saul or any of the other kings who are called anointed were regenerate, were actually believers. But they were also called Christ too. So by the end of the Old Testament, we see that Christ is a prophet, priest or a king who God has set apart and consecrates for himself by anointing. By the end of the Old Testament, it's especially a king who will come and rescue his people. Bring in a wonderful era where the righteous are comforted and the wicked are punished. But at some point during that, the Messiah himself will be cut off. That's what we see about this Christ in the Old Testament. So what about Christ in the New Testament? Well, don't worry, we're not going to go through every time uh, the word Christ is used. It's used a whacking 514 times in the New Testament. So there's no possible way we could go through all of those. But it is of note that two of the four Gospels start by introducing Jesus as the Christ. So Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. You see, we miss that in a way, that this is right there at the beginning. That he's introducing him to us as this anointed one. We miss it because we often think of it as Jesus' surname, don't we? If we're honest, you know Jesus Christ, like Mr. Christ. But it's actually a massive claim to who Jesus is right at the start of their book. They're laying their cards on the table as they tell us who Jesus is. So they're saying, look, Jesus is the Christ. Now let me tell you this story that will show you that that's true. To be fair to John, he gets to it by verse seventeen of his first chapter, the climax of his intro. So you, you know, don't don't do a down on uh, on John. Luke takes a little bit longer, but leaves you in no doubt by the end of the book what he uh, who he thinks that Christ is. The question that we need to ask, though, is what do they mean as they say that? Do they mean that Jesus is this great prophet? Do they mean that Jesus is this anointed priest? Do they mean that he's the anointed king? Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence this evening. It's all three, isn't it? Let's face it. I'm not going to sort of build up tension as to which one it is. Jesus is prophet, isn't he? Revealing God, speaking his word. Jesus is priest, standing between God and man, offering the sacrifice needed for atonement. Jesus is king, the lord and ruler of all. So Jesus is actually all three, isn't he? prophet, priest, and king par excellence. But there is a bias in the Gospels. And to work that out, we need to ask the question, when was Jesus anointed, in what way, and by whom? You see, if Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, have you ever wondered when was he anointed, if he's the anointed one? We might want to say just before his crucifixion. So Mark 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it upon his head. But it seems like an obvious anointing there, doesn't it? But it would seem that Jesus saw this as preparation for his burial, not as anointing him as Christ. So just after there, Mark 14, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, anointing actually was, was a, a special thing to, to set apart kings and, and prophets and priests. But it was also done just in every day. You'd anoint your body for various things. So for burial, uh, just as she says, but also just part of your morning routine, like putting on uh, hair product or aftershave. It was also done for sick people, as you read elsewhere in the, the Bible. It was sort of getting yourself ready for the day. So Jesus tells the uh, Pharisees that when they're fasting, they should anoint themselves with oil. They should just go on as normal, look healthy. But it's unlikely, uh, you know, this, this particular incident that we give in here with the woman here, it's unlikely that's what's in mind really as we think about Christ as the Christ. Much better to think of something that appears in all the Gospels. Uh, it doesn't use the specific language of anointing, but it clearly is what's happening. What I'm speaking of here is Jesus' baptism. Just as David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, Jesus is anointed by the prophet John. Just as the old Elijah anointed kings, so the new Elijah continues to anoint kings. And that's not the only connection with Jesus' baptism. Just as with the anointing of oil in the Old Testament, it's linked with the receiving of the Spirit. So in the New Testament, as Jesus is anointed by John, he uh, has the Spirit land upon him. So Matthew three, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The spirit comes as Jesus is anointed And Acts speaks of this moment as Jesus being anointed by the Spirit. He uses that language. Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus is the one not anointed by oil, but anointed by the Spirit. So this goes some of the way of explaining why Jesus' baptism appears in all four Gospels. In fact, if you think about it, two of the Gospels start with Jesus' baptism. Because if you're going to tell the story of Jesus, the anointed one, you need to tell the story of his anointing. So Jesus' anointing was not with oil, but outwardly with water, And inwardly with the Spirit. So he is the Spirit-filled, anointed one. Which is exactly who he claims to be. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is claiming to be the one anointed by God to bring good news, to preach good news, to bring freedom and liberty. It's interesting that he doesn't carry on to the judgment part, the judgment on God's enemies. That's for his second coming. But he claimed that he was God's anointed one, anointed by God's Holy Spirit, the Christ, capital T, capital C. Now, of course, the disciples don't see this at first. But in each of the Gospels, there's a moment where they confess him as Christ. In each case, they misunderstand what Christ means. They miss out the cutting off of the Messiah. They miss out the spiritual nature of his kingdom. But again and again, Jesus explains that the Christ must suffer. He must be cut off. He must be handed over to be killed. So his anointing as king happens at his baptism. But his crowning as king Happens as the crown of thorns is thrust onto his head at the crucifixion. His royal garments of purple there to mock him. And yet proclaim him in jest what he is in reality. King of the Jews. Jesus' death is part and parcel of him being the Christ. The one who was cut off for his people. So that's what we see in the New Testament. He is the Christ. He is especially that king who has come forward. But he is all three. Prophet, priest and king. So what about those then? Christ and the church. Well, we now share his anointing with the Holy Spirit. We are Christians, literally little Christs. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting by that, that we take part in the atonement or anything like that. But we are anointed by the Spirit, with the Spirit. It's referred to in that language in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, 1 John 2.20 But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge, or 1 John 2:27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But just as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And the language there of anointing seems to refer to receiving the Spirit who teaches us. The phrase anoint with the Spirit never occurs for the Christian in the New Testament, but the idea does. You see, Jesus in the New Testament is the one who will baptise with the Spirit. So Mark 1 verse 8, I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Well, if John's baptism was an anointing, it stands to reason that Jesus' baptism serves that function as well. Again, one of the few statements of Jesus included in all four Gospels is that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. If spirit baptism and being anointed by the Spirit are synonymous, then we do see this in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Or Acts 1, verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, referring to Pentecost, so just as Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, so we are too, and that makes us Christians, little Christs. And if little Christ, then we share the mission of the big Christ, if you like, the Christ. What was his mission? It was to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We are anointed to proclaim the good news. And we too, like Jesus, take on the roles of prophet, priest, and king. So, Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. So, all believers. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, the King James Version has that as you'll make them kings and priests. But the word there is actually kingdom, a kingdom of priests. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we are reigning in this passage, and they shall reign on the earth. It does seem that we take this role as rulers and as priests. Prophets gets a little bit more complicated, if you think about it. Because, actually, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, Paul asks us a question. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? And the answer he's expecting there is no. No, we're not all apostles. We're not all prophets. We're not all teachers. We don't all work miracles. But, even though not all are teachers in that passage... Actually, all of us teach, don't we? We see that in uh, Colossians 3.16, that we're all to teach one another. And in the broadest sense of it, we do prophesy. What is prophecy? Well, revealing God and speaking his word. And that's what we do, isn't it? As we talk to one another, as we speak to other people. We have a prophetic ministry calling people to repentance, even if we don't have the office of prophet. So we do prophesy in the sense that we speak God's word to people. Now, some recent trendy books will try to have you work out which one you are. So they say, you know, there's three moles of ministry you can be. I don't know why I'm doing an American accent. Actually, I probably do know why I'm doing an American <laughs> accent. <laughs> you know, you can be a prophet, you can be a priest, or you can be a king. But the fact is that actually, all of us are all three. We all will reign with Christ. We all are a priesthood of believers. And we all have a prophetic ministry to each other and the world. We all take on that that same thing as Christ because we have the Holy Spirit as well. But for all these things, we must look to Christ because he is actually our prophet. He is our priest and he is our king. He is our spirit-filled, anointed one who proclaims to us peace and reconciliation So in all that we do for him, as we do those roles as prophet, priest and king, we must not lose sight of what he has done for us. Speaking to us words of life as our anointed prophet. Being the mediator between us and God as our anointed priest. More of that in another week. Being our great high king, not just king of the Jews, but of the whole world. The great saviour king that God promised so long ago set aside as God's instrument for the rescue of his people. So the next time you're reading your Bible or you're listening to a sermon and you hear that word Christ mentioned, remember that it's not just another name for Jesus. It's trying to tell you something. It's reminding you that Jesus is our great spirit-filled prophet, priest and king. So let's remember that as we look through his word and just see afresh then how much that speaks to us of who he is and all that he's done for us. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. Father, thank you that he is prophet, priest, and king. Father, thank you that he speaks to us your word through his word, by your Holy Spirit who works in our hearts. Father, thank you that he is priest, that he has stood between us and you, God the Father, and has made atonement for our sins. Father, thank you that he offered himself as that sacrifice to be the great high priest. And thank you, Father, that he is our great king, anointed by John the Baptist, but most of all anointed by your spirit, given that role to preach into the world the good news, and rule and reign as that wonderful king from Psalm 2. Father, thank you that you have set your king in Zion. Father, thank you that he is still there, Father, thank you that he is still reigning. And Father, help us to trust in him as we wait for that day when we will reign with him. Amen. Amen. Amen.